and welcome to episode two of the Ashdown Forest podcast. I'm Eka Morgan, an audio producer, and I'm with wildlife guide Tom Forward. And we see the Ashdown Forest as a springboard for conversations about people and wildlife. And in this episode, our special guest is Tony Juniper, chair of Natural England and a devoted campaigner for nature. I'll also be interviewing Kari Dunbar, whose new job focuses on how people, and in particular their dogs, interact with wildlife. So Tom, what is your take on dogs and wildlife and the Ashdown Forest? I grew up with a dog and having a dog and being able to walk on the Ashdown Forest was a great privilege and in fact so much of what I appreciate and learnt about the forest happened as a result of going for a walk with a dog. Having become an ecologist and a wildlife guide, I'm only too aware of the potential conflicts there are when you've got a, a site of special scientific importance and a domestic wolf running around. And I think Kari's going to be talking to us a little bit about issues around livestock and perhaps ground nesting birds. But there's two lesser known issues that I think are really worth thinking about. One is in early spring, when the adders are emerging from hibernation, they are needing to bask to warm up so that they can get ready to breed and also to prepare to go off hunting and when dogs come charging in and rushing around where they're basking adders are are not yet warm enough to be able to slither away quickly and so they will go into defense mode so that's the time when the dog runs the risk of being bitten so especially in that early spring time of the year keep your dogs under close control and the chance of then having to take the dog to the vet go right down and the adders are can carry on undisturbed too. So we'll talk to some of the dog owners here about whether they've had any interactions with the adders. And what was your second point? And the second point is around flea treatments. Common brands of which have medium dog dosage, the toxicity to kill up to 60 million bees. 60 million bees? Yeah, exactly. And just imagine what happens if your dog recently treated, goes for a dip in a pond and those treatments dissolve in the water and that waterway is full of special dragonflies which are in their larval state or water boatmen or diving beetles, things like that and they are coming into contact with an insecticide that has washed off your dog. It seems like this is a a really obvious opportunity for people to take steps to try and mitigate that impact and one is try and treat preventatively rather than routinely. The other thing is, if you do have to treat them, for a couple of weeks afterwards, keep them under close control, pick up their droppings after them, and definitely keep them out of the gill streams and the ponds on the forest to give the things that are living in the water the best chance of survival. So resist throwing that stick into that pond for them to follow. Yes, please. Yeah. Let's go off for our mini dawn walk. You can tell that we've left the woodland behind because the soundscape has changed completely. We've got Skylark above us singing, Meadow Pipit's just joining in with its parachuting song flight, the linnets are calling away, and all of that is the sound of an open landscape. And we came out here at this spot for a very special treat this morning, and I've just stopped dead in my tracks to the sound of a kind of beep, which is no less than a well only one but a lonely lapwing which i hope isn't that lonely i hope that the partner of that lapwing is on eggs at this time in a lovely bit of wet heath and this is a ground nesting bird 
it's in steep decline and what if what if these birds became a regular breeding bird back on the Ashdown Forest again that would just that would they give it, give it a go every year but that would just be something so special yeah. and they're also called green plover aren't they yeah well sun's just coming up behind us and when you look at them through binoculars you just saw this amazing oily iridescent green sheen coming off their backs and that's offset by this amazing little feathered plume that sticks out the top it's just a it's a glorious glorious bird why do they particularly like wet heath? That is perfect habitat for lots of flies and insects which the lapwings feed on. I have known of them being here, but I'm not ashamed to say that that was my first close-up view of a lapwing in possible nesting habitat on the Ashdown Forest. So, hi there, we've just met you. You've got two dogs. I have. What's your name? Sorry. Martin. Thank you, Martin. Um, how do you go about managing your dogs and have you ever had any issues? No, no, not really. Sometimes you have, you know, a duck moment maybe or something like that where they start swimming across a pond towards some ducks or something and but the ducks can normally look at them and go, really? Yeah. And then just <laughs> take off. Yeah. And have you had any issues with adders? She got bitten by an adder a few years ago. Yeah, it was yeah, it was quite nasty. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. Ended up in the vets, and he found two puncture marks on the sort of side of her mouth. Um, if she if she'd have been a smaller dog, it could have been a very different outcome. But as it was, she was just incredibly unwell. Gosh. So how long to, did she take to recover from? Oh, her? she was fine within 24 hours. What? Oh. Pretty much fine within 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. And last question: Have you had any or seen any interactions of of, of poor dog behaviour on the forest? Uh, yes. You know, it's like. Same with people in life, isn't it? You, you know, you meet you meet good drivers, bad drivers, the vast bulk are okay. It's the same with dog owners, to be honest with you. So Tom and I have just met Sue, who's got four dogs with her. Do you want to tell us what your dogs are? Uh, we have a Boston Terrier, two Springer Spaniels and one Cocker Spaniel. How do you feel about how they interact with wildlife and livestock? Um, I completely stay away from livestock because dogs are unpredictable. And I try, apart from this path, I stay on the main path to keep away from the birds that are nesting. I don't like to interfere with anything. <laughs> have you had any incidents with adders or reptiles? Oh, all? loads. I've had two dogs that have been bitten. He was running around with one in his mouth the other day. It was dead, thank goodness. But I know the seasons of the adders and I won't go near long grass once the season starts, which is very soon. And have you had an issue where you've put your dog on the lead and then the people coming towards you haven't and then it's a more awkward interaction? No, I walk early and late, like Sunday afternoons and Saturday afternoons and that I avoid the forest because you get the general public coming up. I know I'm general public, but they've got less control of their dogs. Darwin! I tend to sort of stay away when there's lots of people up here. So your dog's called Darwin? This one's Darwin. The founder of evolution. <laughs> yeah, this one's Squeaky. This one's Jiggy. That one's Moss. So I'm back on the forest, this time with Kari Dunbar, because it turns out Wealdon District Council have actually funded a new post 
at the Ashdown Forest Centre focusing on how visitors interact with the wildlife and livestock on the forest. So, Kari, how did this post come into being? It's funded by developer contributions. Every time a developer builds within seven kilometres of Ashdown Forest, they have to put some money in a pot. We know the population is going to increase and we want to make sure that that increase doesn't have a negative impact on the wildlife on the forest, specifically the Dartford warblers and nightjars, which is the reason the forest has its protected status. And so how much of a threat are visitors to these ground nesting birds and, and the livestock? If visitors stay on the wide rides and on the paths, then the threat is minimal. The problems come about when people come off the paths and go exploring into the heathland, in, through the heather, through the gorse, which is where the birds nest. Nightjars nest straight on the ground. Dartford warblers nest a little bit off the ground. And they can be flushed from their nest, they can abandon their nest. And while they're away from their nest, predators can eat their eggs and their chicks. Is the main issue dogs? Not necessarily. We know that... We have about 1.4 million visits to the forest a year and about 60% of those visitors have dogs with them. Dogs are great. We welcome dogs on the forest. A lot of the staff have dogs. I have two. I love dogs. The issues come about when dogs aren't with their owners. They go off into the heathland doing what dogs do. A lot of them are bred for hunting and that's a natural thing for them to do. But by doing that, they cause a lot of issues for the birds and the livestock. So from having read up on this a bit, it seems to me there are three issues with dogs. One is poo, Mm -hmm. two is dogs chasing wildlife, birds and livestock, and three is dogs jumping in the face of of visitors. Can we take each each point? So can we start with poo? Yeah, poo is really interesting, actually. I've been doing a lot of reading recently on poo. It's amazing how much literature there is and how many studies have been done on dog poo. Um, I think everybody knows that dog poo is nasty and people don't want to tread in it and people don't want to have their picnics in it and the ambiguity comes where people think that they only need to pick their poo up if it's not on the path there's quite a few problems with that one is that dog poo carries all kinds of nasty diseases and the livestock can pick that up and people as well can pick it up there's an amazing study recently that's shown that an increase in dog poo attracts more foxes and then the foxes protect the nest of the ground nesting birds and that's because the foxes eat the dog poo because it's really calorific so the, fo- <laughs> the foxes eat the dog poo and why does that lead them to the nests of ground nesting because birds because people aren't picking their poo up in the heather where the nests are so ah. the foxes are attracted off the paths into the heather and then they have they have their lovely oh. dog poo snack, and then for pudding they'll have a bird egg. God, so it's lovely. Have you ever counted a number of poo bags in a day? No, I really want to. I, I did read that one nature reserve counted 350 dog poo bags just at the entrance on one day. Wow. Yeah. So we've covered poo. How yep. about dogs chasing? Oh, it's called worrying, isn't it? Yeah, livestock worrying. Why is it um, called worrying? I don't know. It makes it sound a little bit nicer than it is, I think, <laughs> calling it worrying. I've, I've no idea where that's come from. And it's a lot worse than just you've made a sheep a little bit worried. Sheep, when they're pregnant or when they have lambs, are very sensitive. And even if they're just scared by a dog nearby, the dog might not actually have to physically hurt them. But if it chases them or it makes them a bit worried, then they could abort their lambs. Cattle as well can get worried by dogs it's a big issue and the evidence seems to be pointing to it rising and I'm not sure why. I did interview a few years ago the last commoner 
mm. on the Ashdown Forest for whom it's his actual livelihood. And he said he's had hundreds of sheep yeah. die over the years. And, and he did say that one thing that owners don't seem to totally understand is the dog might give the sheep a little nip, mm. but that nip will fester and maggots will get in. Actually, he described it as eaten alive. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? And the farmers really care for their stock as well. They're not just numbers. They're all, they're all individuals and they, they do care for them. And it must be devastating. And it, it can affect whole generations of sheep. You can't look at it as just one individual sheep and that costs X amount of money. That might be a breeding sheep and it would go on to have lots of other sheep. Yeah, we just need everybody to stay sensible and keep their dogs with them around the livestock. So you're calling that close control, I've heard. Yeah. So you're not insisting that people should have their dogs on lead? No, no, you don't need to have your dog on the lead. As long as your dog's staying with you, it's not approaching other people or other dogs or horses uninvited it's got a really good recall and so we say they need to come back on the first call really the second at a push but it needs to be an instant comeback when you're told to and if you don't have faith in your dog in that area then then pop them on a lead but no we're not insisting that people need to keep their dogs on leads so what about when dogs jump in the face of visitors with or without dogs if you're the person and the dog is jumping on you, the advice I can give is cross your arms and turn your back to them or just stand totally still. Don't look at them. They'll, they'll get bored and they'll run off. So cross your arms, turn away, don't look them yeah, in the eye. Yeah, because mostly it, it, they're friendly dogs and they just want to say hi. That is one of the things that owners do often say and I, I, I wonder if you could suggest an alternative line because many dog owners do say, oh, he's only being friendly. Yeah. And when you've heard that a hundred times and you don't know it as a visitor if they're only being friendly. Yeah. So you could just shout out, can you call your dog back, please? It's awkward to do that. It is awkward, yeah, but you just got to do it. Be confident. <laughs> but really, it's up to the dog owners. The dog owners shouldn't be letting their dogs run over to you. Okay, so you've painted lots of dream scenarios of how people should manage their dogs. Yep. We know that it's not always the case that that goes to plan. Yeah. So how can your role help train people and how can you get to the people who really aren't in control of their dogs? Yeah, so it's, it's engagement really. I'm going to get out there as much as I possibly can chatting to people. I've already done a, a quick mini update of the code of conduct for dog owners but I'll do more of things like that. And you really think people do listen and they read the code of conduct they you know people who aren't in control of their dog do listen to suggestions? I think if you're not in control of your dog and you go to an area where you see a lot of under control very well behaved dogs you're going to feel bad that your dog isn't like that and it's going to incentivize you to go off and do some extra training ah so the most powerful is really peer pressure of yeah. other dog owners then the ashdown forest center saying please do this and that yeah i think so thank you <laughs> thank you so i'm delighted to say that i'm now with tony juniper and Tony's background is that he was the director of Friends of the Earth England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And he is now the chair of Natural England. But he's also a prolific writer on parrots, rainforests and a huge number of other books, most of them with Saving the Planet at their core. One of them has an expletive in the title. So, Tony, what I'd love to do is to start with the big picture and then we'll come back to the Ashland Forest. So given that you've been a campaigner for decades now, 
I would love to hear what you think have been the successes over that time. I think the biggest shift that I've seen is the level of awareness. And so going back to the middle 1980s, and these subjects were just beginning to, to creep into the popular consciousness. Deforestation, disappearing animals and plants, climate change. And they, they took a while to, to really kind of hit home, but they did. But if you look at the reality of what's going on, we are still very far from where we need to be. From what I've understood, the way the climate change debate went was from an attempt to prevent or mitigate and then to adapt... And now the nature debate has gone from sort of protect, conserve and now recover. Yeah. So where are you personally at and you as chair of Natural England at in recovery? How exciting can that be? We've placed nature recovery at the heart of what Natural England is, is trying to do. We know from successive scientific studies that hanging on to what's left is not sufficient. We don't have enough nature. The, the, the landscape is too fragmented. And so what we have to do is reconnect, make the landscape once more wild to have better quality protected areas, more of them that are bigger, bending the curve away from decline and towards recovery. Though, as we know, and as you've just mentioned, nature on the brink is what we hear about most days on the news. Nature is on the brink of collapse. How much do you feel that we're at a moment where we really have just got to down tools focus all our efforts on this, all hands on deck, rather than have it as a sideline? Yes, the mainstreaming of this is essential. So we've had environmental policy for 50 years and it's become more ambitious, but it's been seen as something which is separate to the economy. We have fallen into the trap of seeing the destruction of the natural world as the price of progress. And so in order to grow the economy, environmental protections have to go or to be downscaled or delayed into the future. And so this is disastrous. And so if we cannot link economic and ecological concerns, we will continue to fail. Because in the end, our economy is 100% dependent upon the natural world. So if you want a bigger economy, you've got to improve the health of nature to do it. And obviously, like all of these things, easier said than done. Um, because, you know, people like me who are very close to it can see it. But evidently, there are a great many people who still can't quite see it, despite that shift in awareness. Um, still some quite major gaps between cause and effect in terms of people's understanding. So I'd now like to come back to the Ashdown Forest and also in your role as Chair of Natural England. And I just want to explain to listeners that the Ashdown Forest Centre receives three quarters of its funding, £600,000, from the Countryside Stewardship Grant. And you advise on how we conserve the Ashdown Forest. So when you look out on the Ashdown Forest, what kind of nature do you see when you look here? Well, the first thing I see is, is a massive asset for society and also a huge opportunity for the future as we go from this idea of conservation and hanging on to little fragments and into this idea of nature recovery because places like the Ashdown Forest are very rare in southern England a pretty large area of connected heathland a mosaic of woodland and grassland and covering some pretty substantial area 
And one of the really inspiring things here that I'm learning a little bit about is this idea of the wheeled to waves initiative. So linking the Ashdown Forest across the landscape all the way down to the south coast via other areas of, of high quality nature, some of it farmed, some of it a rewilding project, all the way down to what's going on in the sea with a huge kelp recovery project along the south coast just offshore. And so putting all of those things together with the Ashdown Forest in that landscape is the kind of ambition that increasingly we do need to think about. But looking at this place, it's got its challenges evidently. I'm told there is a, an unsustainably high population of fallow deer here. I see as we're sitting in the wood and looking around areas of rhododendron um, which have escaped out of gardens decades possibly centuries ago which are a problem in this kind of heathland woodland habitat but both of those things are dealable with um, if if we put in the effort and can get the resources needed to, to manage the place. And before we came and sat on this mossy log in the mm. woodland, I took you for a drive up to see the views out to the South Downs and over to the North Downs and a fine stretch of heath. How, how do you read that landscape? Because uh, just, just to tell you, back in 1822, William Cobbett, who was on horseback there, who was a chronicler of England at the time, he said it was verily the most villainously ugly spot he'd ever seen. <laughs> And it's quite likely that there it was cannon industry, there were yeah. smelters, blast furnaces. Mm. It was a post-industrial landscape. The Ashland Forest has been grazed with an inch of its life. It had tanks driving all over it during the Second World War. So do you see it as natural mm. beauty? Do you see a world of wounds? So like every landscape in England, you know, you, you see a combination of, of, it, of its aesthetic and visual qualities. You see wildlife and nature and ecology and you see history and also increasingly you see ecosystem services like the carbon it's holding or the way it's purifying water and I tend to look at landscapes increasingly through those four prisms at once and actually that part about how this place looks today that cultural and historic dimension is really quite important because every landscape that we see today it's a snapshot in time all of them have got a long history and this one of course like every other landscape it's got dimensions of the Norman conquest there'll be Roman remains here more recent impacts from the Industrial Revolution and the Second World War and that then always throws up the impossible question of well what would we see as good here do we want it like the time that William the Conqueror passed through for the first time would we like it to be a kind of heathland that Thomas Hardy would have recognised? There's no right answer to any of that, except in the modern world to say, actually, we really need to maximise the value to society and the value to nature, and that will require attention to the natural beauty, and it's in the area of outstanding natural beauty. It will require attention to the ecology, and we want to bring the nightingale and the dormouse back here, which means we're going to need to control deer and to control the gauze and it will mean that we want to maximize the social benefit which is going to be about educating the public not to have their dogs disturbing ground nesting birds for example and so what's going to be the way in which we can build resilience into this landscape at the same time as protecting some of what has been valuable for for a very long time while the public love national parks nature reserves places like this it does seem that there's still a uh, kind of entry level and I'd include myself in that understanding of how actually depleted it is how can we persuade people to to see nature differently 
Well, one of the things that, that we've identified as a priority at Natural England, and we're not the only ones, lots of people have concluded the same thing, is that we have to find ways of connecting people much more with, with the natural world. We've become isolated from it, whereas a couple of centuries ago, you know, the vast majority of the people would have been farming or hunting or involved in forest industries, and so would have had that day-to-day instinctive connection with nature. We just don't have it anymore. And so connecting people with nature is a vital part of what we have to do, not only to conserve nature but also to conserve people because we know that we get a huge health and well-being benefit from access to natural areas. This is one reason why this nature recovery agenda that we have at Natural England, it's not exclusively about special beautiful places like this, it's about places that are in the hearts of towns and cities as well and so we see that going from the tops of the highest mountains and the remotest national parks right into the centre of our biggest cities. We must reconnect people with nature if we're going to stop the mass extinction and thereby support the health and well-being of people. One of the things that I've noticed is that I am very curious about nature but I'm not that connected to it and I think this is true of many people it's the pace with which we visit woods and green spaces that it's our exercise we sort of pound, you know pound through them to get our bit of exercise and air whereas it's really only when you walk slowly and you observe do you actually notice the birds and yeah yeah and uh, the, the, this is this is about paying attention and actually I had a conversation with someone the other day about bird watching and, and how you do bird watching and I said the simple truth is that you pay attention and that's all there is to it really and once you start paying attention, you see things and you hear things. And when you start to hear and see things, you can start to work out what's going on. You know, quite a few of the conservationists who are my generation, you know, we grew up looking at birds and butterflies and plants and insects. And we had that connection in childhood, which came from identification and from tuning in, which is why I'm very excited about this idea of the Natural History GCSE, which will be brought forward into the education system in the coming years across this country. I know my fellow audio producer Mary Colwell was behind the campaign to get the Natural History GCSE and I, 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 would, I hope to, to have her on the podcast. So there's a lot of talk these days of all the different possible reintroduction of species, beaver, pine martin, lynx even. Is there a species of animal or plant that looking around us now you think would be suitable to reintroduce here? Well, I have to say that as we drove around earlier on and just looking at the landscape and and some of those undulating expanses of of connected heathland with scrubby woodland and areas of, of more mature trees and reading recently about the relatively recent disappearance of the black grouse here, I was thinking that, you know, this sounds like a really interesting thing to look at. And I know there's enormous complexities in all of these reintroductions because, you know, the, 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 the black grouse was once here and it went extinct for a reason, probably a set of reasons. And so until we understand that set of reasons and can be confident that those reasons can be managed and reversed, there's probably not a lot of point in trying it. But I think the idea of looking into the return of animals like that to parts of the country like this, I think it's very, very exciting. And what's your take on rewilding in general? Maybe your take and Natural England's take well, my, are my, different? Yeah. But no, the, the, the take of Natural England myself, I, I think, are as one uh, on, on the rewilding idea, which is a very powerful idea and which has inspired a lot of imagination and given people a lot of energy. But at Natural England, we talk about nature recovery. 
as our headline idea, because nature recovery, it implies not only rewilding, but also the restoration of biodiversity in farmed landscapes, for example. So in the middle of a field, using less pesticide, that will lead to lower mortality of invertebrates, which will mean that some of the songbirds can come back in that landscape, the yellowhammers and the skylarks, because if we let everything go wild, we'd probably lose quite a lot as well as gaining something. Thank you, Tony. Could you name one or two or three of your favourite heathland species Hmm. possibly birds because we like having a little interludes where we actually play some some bird song okay so heathland birds that i like well one has to be the nightjar this is a bird that i've been fascinated with ever since i could hold a pair of binoculars i think they're wonderful creatures and the heathlands of england are a stronghold for them another i think would be the hobby um, not necessarily only a heathland bird, but when they were very very scarce during the 1970s, they were on the, the southern English heathlands, was one of their strongholds. It's a, a wonderful little creature and chases dragonflies famously and does this incredible hunting, dashing flight. They even go after house martins and, and even swifts. And then a third one would probably be the woodlark because of the early singing in the spring Uh, they they kind of bring winter to a close um, quite early on and that's always welcome yes we'll we'll be featuring the nightjar over a future summer issue Mm. and the hobby what what, what does the hobby sound like it kind of goes that's that that's an alarm call that's the the sound that they make very often yeah probably a bit agitated when they're doing that i would think (laughs) and then your third one was the woodlark which we featured in in the last episode but we would love to play that again yeah thank you very much tony (laughs) thank you okay pleasure So Tom and I are out on another dusk walk, but it's a dusk walk with a difference because we have not one, not two, but three under 11-year-olds with us. And can you give us your names and ages? I'm Amber Rose and I'm 11. I'm Oliver and I'm 10. Hi, I'm Joseph and I'm 7. Brilliant. Now, Oliver and Joseph are Tom's children and Amber Rose is their friend. So talk us through, Tom. Okay, well, we're next to Ellison's Pond and we came here on the off chance that we would coincide with a mass spawning event and you might just be able to hear in the background that we're speaking to a a soundtrack of amorous frogs. just frogs we're hearing it's not toads as well they're mostly frogs but there was the odd little kind of high-pitched croak which is all that the toads can muster and what are the geese is it geese what are we overhearing overhead no that's that's the toads 
Oh. What you think is, is birds is actually just a, a high-pitched toad croak. Oh, there we go. That's the toads. Did you realise that, Ambrose? I would have thought the toad makes the louder and lower-pitched noise. But it actually, it's the frog. Yeah, and, and it's completely contrary to what you think. You think of toads as being big and burpy and low. Actually, it's the frogs who have the low croak. And the toads have this slightly kind of weedy, kind of high-pitched Almost like a chirruping, goosey type of croak, yeah. <laughs> so, Tom, I've definitely yeah. seen frogs mate in the daytime. Is it as normal for them to mate at night time? Yeah, I mean, what's the advantage of doing it at night time? Often it's cooler, it's often wetter, they don't like it dry. And most importantly, the things that eat them, like herons, are roosting and asleep. So, it's way safer to be even more active by night time than it is by day. If I was counting, I would have got up to a hundred toads by now, or seventy. There are millions in this one pond. Great! Wow, that's very patient of you, Joseph. Here, guys, there could be some spawn over here. Wait, there's loads of spawn. Yes, you got the strings. Black strings yeah, of eggs. That's toad spawn. And look, there's two toads here mating. Yeah. There's one toad on frog. Is there? Yeah, look. Let's one see. toad at the bottom, one frog oh at the God. top. Oh, my God! A toad and a frog okay, mating. A male frog mating with a female toad. What would happen? Not much. You'd get a hybrid. <laughs> no hybrids, unfortunately. But, but look at uh, the strings. It does get confusing in oh these God, Tom, amphibian orgies, that's for sure. Thanks. And you've never seen that before, Tom? I've never seen that before, no. Well, what a surprise we had at Ellison's Pond, absolutely humming with amorous frogs and toads. And we want to go over and check the wet heath with our thermal imaging camera and see if we can see any nighttime foraging of perhaps woodcock or snipe. Right, we're going to go into stealth mode now, kids, over this squelchy ground which is the ideal kind of foraging grounds for woodcock it's nice soft mud that they can probe in for things like earthworms we're going to use this thermal imaging camera to just pan across and see if we can pick up any heat signatures from the open landscape ahead of us that will help us spot things but also do it in such a way that we don't have to uh, scare them off. We can just be really sensitive about how we're moving about. I'm going to go to white hot mode. Okay. I'm going to try white hot and then anything that is warm should show up as white hot. I think it's a rabbit on the edge of the path. I can almost see its ears now. You see, can you make out what that shape is yet? It's a rabbit. I think you might be right. Should we go and try and prove that that's a rabbit or not? <laughs> oh my god, it's a woodcock! I can't believe we got a woodcock and it's staying stock still. Oh, it's just done a poo. The poo's shining up white as well. <laughs> oh, there it goes. Woodcock's flown off. There it goes. Can you see it? So what did the woodcock look like to you in the thermal imaging camera? Well, it looked quite big, but I don't know if it's actually that big, but it had a very long beak. It, was, it had the kind of the shape of a wader. But the body looked like a pheasant. Yeah, it's quite dumpy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Should we go and try and find what a woodcock poo I looks like? We might even be able to see where it's been probing the ground with its long beak. 
Oh, there we go, there we go. Is there's that one there? there? Yeah, look here. Yeah, yeah, yeah and holes. another one there. Yeah, and there. two here. So those holes are where it was digging for worms with its Yeah, beef. and now when it's bills, it's, I think it's, you know, six or seven centimetres long, maybe even a touch more, and it's hypersensitive and is able to probe into this soft ground that we're standing on. Here, that squelch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think I think we got what we came for, don't you? <laughs> I think we did. What does everyone yeah. feel? So I think we're going to draw this to a close because we've had our fair share of frogs, toads and even woodcock poo. So <laughs> our mystery sounds are coming up but firstly it's, we really need to thank the Friends of Ashdown Forest and the Ashdown Forest Foundation known as TAF who have funded the first two episodes of these podcasts. So we're going to get the kids to say a few things. Over to you Amber Rose. Both charities organise events and fund projects which protect the forest. The About Us page on Ashdown Forest website has more about these two charities. Great, and we also received an extremely generous out of the blue donation towards these podcasts from Martin from Cookfield and Tom's going to just read out his two lines he sent us. I donated because the Ashdown Forest needs protecting. Your podcasts help achieve this objective and the podcasts cost money to make. No donations, no podcasts. And he signs off with a sad face emoji. But it wasn't sad for us, was it? Because we no. got a lovely, healthy donation. Yeah. So what M Martin did was he sent an email to... Ashdownpodcast at gmail.com Yes, and just to say that we're making these podcasts to enhance visitors' appreciation and understanding of the forest. And if you are in a position to sponsor us, please do get in touch through that address. Can we hear it again, Joseph? Ashdownpodcast at gmail.com And now on to our mystery sound section. Here's sound number one. And here's sound number two. Thank you, Tom. And we'd hugely appreciate it if you follow us on your podcast platform so that you automatically know when the next episode's out. I had to show a friend how to do this the other day. So you look for a tab that says follow on your podcast platform or, or it might be a tick. And in the next episode, we'll be interviewing the rewilding pioneer, Isabella Tree. So it's goodbye from me and also from... Joseph, Oliver and Ambrose. And me, Tom. See you next time. Bye! Bye. Bye.